Hi, and thanks for downloading. This is my first ever podcast. As such, I feel we are on equal footing. I should introduce myself to start with. My name is Ancient Blogger, and I blog on ancient things, which is very fortunate. You can also find me on my website, ancientblogger.com, and on Twitter, at ancientblogger. There's obviously a theme going there, I think. Now, you're probably wondering, of all the topics, themes, or subjects, why choose bees and beekeeping? Uh, It's a good question. The main reason is that I like to think this typifies my blog and my approach to ancient history, uh, in that I like to look at something a bit different, and apiculture, which is bees and beekeeping to you and me, takes us to different people, places, and points in time in antiquity. Some of my articles and podcasts will be more specific, but here's something which, like honey, is versatile and is hard not to like. So here we go. Are you ready? First up, I want you to close your eyes and imagine that you are wandering in beautiful countryside. In fact, you're in Colchis, which is modern-day Georgia, lovely place, and more specifically, western Georgia, near the coast of the Black Sea. So if you can find a map of the Black Sea, look to the bottom right of it, and that's where you are. According to myth, by the way, this is where Medea was from, um, and it was seen by the ancient Greeks as a bit of a spooky place, but I digress. Sadly, you're not on a lazy stroll. You're in armour because you're a Roman legionary, and it's 65 BC. Your commander is the famed Pompey the Great, and he's been tasked with pinning down and defeating the famous Mithridates. At some point I'll do a podcast on him specifically because he's an incredibly interesting person. Mithridates isn't about to line his troops up for the Romans, so whilst you aren't expecting to be attacked by a large force, you'll still want to be on your guard. It's possible that a few of your colleagues have heard rumours of this place, and if they had, it might have elicited a nervous sweat about your brow. One of the tribes in this region is called, and I'll try this for the first time, it's called the Heptcomites, and Strabo referred to them as tree-dwelling savages, which doesn't really foster a great deal of safety. Any anywhere remotely wooded, which you which you obviously are. In his famous march, Xenophon seemed to encounter them as well, and he goes into more detail. They were big fans of dancing and lived in huts in the trees, so you might be thinking of some sort of Ewok village. My Star Wars knowledge isn't that great, but I can't remember the Ewoks having the noble families uh, fatten their kids and then tattoo them in a sort of beauty pageant. And I also, well, I absolutely don't remember Ewoks being sexual exhibitionists, which is what horrified Xenophon. Uh, but then again, perhaps all of that happened at the party after the credits. More peculiar than all of this is their political structure. And I mean this literally. Their king lived his entire life up a tree. And if he was found lacking in the leadership stakes, the populace would stop sending food up and he'd starve. It all sounds a bit Herodotus, but, you know, these are your neighbours. Whilst we aren't sure exactly what was truth and what was fiction, you can be sure of a few things. And one of them that is, as a Roman soldier, you'd be always on the lookout for a bit of extra rations. Legionaries would often be allowed to hunt or scavenge, depending on their situation. So, as you walk, you stumble on stacks of honeycombs left by the fleeing locals. And you're thinking... It's my lucky day. But, surely you realise this is not going to end well. Depending on how much you ate, and how potent the honey was, it would take a couple of minutes or a few hours for the real symptoms to kick in. Now, these would include excessive salivation, not bad, sweating, must be uncomfortable, vomiting, diarrhoea, dizziness, and overall weakness. 
not pleasant. You'd also experience parathesia, which is numbness or tingling. Think uh, pins and needles, that sort of thing, in your extremities and around your mouth. Large doses of this, and this can be just a few tablespoons, will see a decreased heart rate and real lack of coordination. It can be fatal, though this is really, really rare. In any case, it's largely irrelevant as the honey has done its work. You've probably worked out now the honey wasn't just accidentally left. It'd be purposely placed there, most likely by the Heptacometes, who returned a short time later and killed around a 1,000 helpless troops, some of whom probably couldn't even stand. What made the honey so dangerous? Allow me a bit of science here. Well, it's all natural. Certain species of rhododendrons have something called granotoxins in them which is present in honey made from their pollen. The locals would have known this, and even today it's marketed as mad honey. You can actually tell by, or you test it, by rubbing a small amount in the centre of your palm, and your palm will then start to tingle. Fingers will go a bit numb. Like many toxins, small amounts can be beneficial, and it's thought to be effective for treating diabetes. It does have one effect, which means that you've probably had offers for it come into your spam box, namely as a marital aid. It works very much like Viagra, apparently. I found a medical article which told the tale of a married couple in their 40s who'd taken some for this exact purpose, but had taken a bit too much and ended up in hospital. They were both fine, by the way, and does make you think perhaps a few of those legionaries died with a smile on their face. The use of honey as a biological weapon may be news to you, and it certainly was to me, but let's start at the beginning. We need a pin on the timeline here. Unfortunately, we have just such a thing, albeit in a cave at the other end of the Mediterranean. Not only a fair trot from cultures, but many years before, around 8000 BC in fact. The image in question is quite simple and depicts a figure collecting honey from a nest in what looks like a tree. The figure carries a basket and bees swarm around him or her. This is the earliest depiction we have in Europe for the harvesting of honey. And of course, what would you call such a cave where the earliest depiction of honey gathering was found? Um, but the spider cave, uh, or Arana, as it's otherwise known. And you think they've really missed an opportunity with marketing here. But anyway, don't worry too much. We'll meet a far more famous bee cave later on. This still isn't apicultural though, it's not beekeeping in the real sense of it, but I cite it in part because the very physical evidence of beekeeping isn't something you expect to survive. Hives were made from very perishable materials, so this image gives us a starter point. Perhaps apiculture sat alongside it, as it does today, perhaps it didn't. The Egyptians rarely let you down, and this is certainly the case with honey. The Smith Papyrus, dated 2600 BC, mentions the use of honey as a wound salve. If you didn't know, honey is a great antiseptic, and added to the fact that it's sticky, so it stay in a wound, you have a perfect medium to treat any cuts or grazes with. Not only could it stop people dying, it could also stop people being born. Alongside crocodile dung, it was used as a contraceptive, and this gives me my first chance to use the term, do not try this at home, or at least buy the crocodile a drink first. It was valued highly, it even had dedicated officials in Egypt, such as sealer of the honey and overseer of the beekeepers to ensure that stocks were kept fresh. Thutmose III even exacted it as tribute from his lands in Palestine. So if honey was lauded as much of this, then it makes sense the Egyptians may have had an industry for its production, or what we would term apiculture. Now we have a scene dating from 2500 BC in a temple which depicts workers storing honey. Now not till later on, actually the end of the 15th century BC when we get a peek at our first beehive. It's in a place called the Tomb of Rechmiri. That's R-E-K-H-M-I-R-E -E, if you want to look him up. And at first glance it's hard to see what's going on exactly. 
there's two figures, one standing and one kneeling down. In front of them are three half cylinders stacked horizontally uh, with one end removed, a bit like torpedoes. The kneeling figure is collecting what looks like small sponges, whilst the standing one holds a bowl. Looks like smoke coming out of it. So here we are, the basics of apiculture. Hives, collection of honey, and even the use of smoke to facilitate it. What struck me were the hives. I'm unsure why I expected to see a modern type of hive. I suppose I hadn't thought about it much. As ever, the Egyptians had applied a real sense of pragmatism to their work. If you have cylinders stacked horizontally, you can easily turn a single building into what is a hive factory. This also has the advantage of being easy to secure, something we'll come to later. We can see that keeping hives secure was a genuine concern. Take the Hittites, for example. These were people whose empire covers most of Monday, Turkey and Syria. And they were on the rise in the middle of the second millennium BC. So around the same time as the images of the hives I've just discussed were in play. The Hittites took honey very seriously. Laws concerning fires for damaging or stealing hives were found on a Hittite tablet dating to 1300 BC. There's even an argument that the Hittite word for sweet and honey developed from the other, though we're not sure which came first. Now, the Hittite empire had crumbled by about the 10th century BC, but apiculture in this region still carried on regardless. Now, this period is really where we're starting to enter the, what I suppose you call the Old Testament. And it's somewhat curious, there's no real reference to apiculture in the Old Testament. The word honey does get a few mentions, but the poor bee is only mentioned four times. Given that Egypt and the Hittites were keen on apiculture and that both these cultures are prominent in the Middle East, it was surprising if there wasn't something going on there. Now, we're very lucky because we have an excavation at a site in the Jordan Valley called Tel Rehov, as R-E-H-O-V, and this gives us a fascinating insight into what was going on around the time of King David, so that's 10th century BC for all you biblical historians. In a built-up area of the settlement, beehives were found, and the hives resembled those depicted on the Egyptian scene. And this was curious for one main reason. The bee native to this area isn't very good for apiculture. It's aggressive and has quite a poor honey yield. I'd not given much thought. I'd always assumed that bees were equal. True, I'd seen those horror films as a kid about the aggressive killer bees from Africa, which were invariably about to invade at any one point, but I hadn't realised that subspecies varied as much as they did, or that how many of them there were. Having aggressive bees in a built-up area of the settlement could only indicate, really, that planning departments haven't really changed a great deal. A lucky find in one of those hives solved the riddle. A very small part of the bee, which had used the hive, was somehow identified. This wasn't the aggressive local bee. It was a bee native to Turkey, a bee far more passive, and which was far more industrious in the honey-making scheme of things. Suddenly, the choices labelled folly made sense. Having the bees in a built-up area allowed you to keep an eye on them and stop interbreeding all the local bees from hive crashing. And this itself suggests a developed level of apiculture, more sophisticated than perhaps we'd expected. But overarching all of this was the notion that apiculture at this point involved the identification of effective types of bee and the export of them. Presumably, these weren't simply stolen from Turkey. These bees may have been ordered and shipped to their new location. So rather than a static industry, we can now appreciate that apiculture was mobile. Indeed, a later inscription for Mesopotamia, which dates the 8th century BC, boasted of how the governor introduced beekeeping to the area. Now, if we consider that apiculture was a sophisticated industry at this point in time, you can probably read a little more into the governor's boast. Beekeeping may well have occurred already in a more basic form, but perhaps the governor was boasting of the more nuanced practice and developed level of it. The sort which should involve stacked hives, imported bees, and this 
in a way can be seen as a sort of economic indicator. This level of agriculture wasn't easily achievable, particularly in unstable regions. So whilst this boast was primarily about the sweet stuff, it was almost a, a way of declaring that the governor had brought stability and, and prosperity to his region. It's at this juncture that we start to involve the Greeks. The Mediterranean was a highly effective tool at spreading technologies, so we can expect that by the time the governor was boasting about his hives in the 8th century BC, the Greeks were aware of hives and honey. In fact, we only need to look at one of the Greek myths to see bees fully involved. If you think Oedipus had problems with his mum, you might want to consider Zeus as being somewhere near the equivalent with his dad Kronos. After avoiding being swallowed by him as a baby, he was kept safe on Mount Ida in Crete. In fact, he was kept away from daddy in a cave where some bees lived and these bees fed him with honey and their buzzing apparently helped cover his infant cries. Uh, it all sounds a bit Disney doesn't it? Myths concerning these bees are numerous. In some instances they are known as the Thray, which are three divinities who also gave Apollo his gift of prophecy. Sometimes a nickname may be mistaken as literal. For example, She-Wolf who cared for Romulus and Remus may be viewed in a different context when you find out that She-Wolf was a nickname for a prostitute. In the same context, it may have been beekeepers who kept Zeus happy in the cave. The names Melissius, which translates as Bee Man, and his daughter Melissa, which means bee, are also associated with this myth. We could be more, far more accurate though when we say that bees were strongly associated with the Minoan culture which spread outwards from Crete across the Mediterranean. In the famous palace at Knossos exists what's known as the Snake Room which takes its name mainly from the strong association with snakes that the early archaeologists diagnosed. However, it's been argued that many of the items refer to bees. Wax collectors and even smokers were apicultural paraphernalia, rather than simply keeping Indiana Jones away from it. The possible involvement of bee worship isn't just restricted to Crete, though. Ephesus was a Greek colony established in the 10th century BC, a good 500 years after the Minoan society had ended, but the link to bees was still very prevalent. Greek polytheism, which is the worship of several gods, was really quite handy when you encountered other cultures who also had a polytheistic outlook. Rather than simply argue about whose singular god was tougher, it was far easier to rebrand the local deity as one of your own. You'd find similarities. At Ephesus, this happened, and the local deity worship was Cybele uh, or Kybele. Um, she was an overarching mother goddess, and when the new Greek colony arrived and set up, it started worshipping her as Artemis. The big challenge in doing this was how you replace a mother goddess with another deity whose virginity was central, I suppose, to her character. Luckily, a common ground was found. Both deities were big animal lovers. But now consider the famed statue of the Ephesian Artemis. Google it if you can. You don't have, here you don't have a dainty young goddess with a bow in hand, you have something very different. In fact, it's barely recognisable as human apart from her head. The main feature of the torso is a collection of what many see as breasts. Perfect for a mother goddess figure, uh, less so for Artemis. But were they breasts? Scholars have argued for a few alternatives, including bull testicles, nice, but there exists another option, far more in keeping with the theme of this podcast, bumblebee larva develop in small spherical structures, which look, which look a bit, I suppose, like breasts or testicles. Apart from the obvious size difference, I should add. Worship of statues isn't the default option. A deity could have been worshipped in a number of ways. So, for example, in Samos, uh, which isn't far from Ephesus, Hera was worshipped in the form of a plank tied to a tree. So let's just suppose that the original worship involved some sort of idol that could have been a figure or a statue or just a simple object. 
all of a sudden you have a nest of bumblebees that attach itself to the idol. And this could have been easily taken as a sign of approval from the deity. But, I can hear you tutting, it is a bit far-fetched and requires several events to have occurred in a very neat sequence. Well, you're right, but this sort of thing happened elsewhere. Let me give you an example. The citizens of Amethyst took the use of a head as a hive by bees as a sign to make sacrifice to it. Awkward, given that they had chopped the head off in the first place. Then there's Ephesus itself. Bees are strongly associated throughout Ephesus. Young girls serving there were as known as Melissa, which was, we've seen means bee. And the senior official was referred to as King Bee. Ephesian hoplites even featured the bee on their shield. Now, this doesn't prove that globes on the Ephesian Artemis represent the bee, but it does give it a bit of traction. Elsewhere, in the Greek world, both bees and honey were making their mark. Time. Hesiod's Theognis contains a reference to the hive. But even the archaic poet Simonides give reference to the bee, albeit in a somewhat unusual manner. Simonides had the idea that various types of women were linked to an animal counterpart that they were, had somehow evolved or developed from. I won't go into it too much, but let's just say he wasn't overly complimentary, apart from one, one type of woman who was the counterpart of the bee. And I, and I quote, Lucky is he who gets one like this, for no reproach settles on her. Life blossoms because of her and flourishes too. Loved, she grows old with a husband who loves her too and bears a stock that's lovely to see and honoured of her name as well. Distinguished among mankind, a grace that's divine suffuses her. She doesn't enjoy sitting with other women who gossip and talk about sex. Wives like this are the wisest and the best that Zeus bestows upon mankind. Well, that's Simonides being charming about women. And in any case you wondered, the worst type of wife was one derived from the ape. Not only very ugly, very cunning too, apparently. Zeus only knows how he would have fared on Twitter. Athens, of course, were duly concerned with bees, and Solon enacted a law in 594 BC which stated that a hive must be at least 300 feet from another hive. If we knew of hives as individual structures, this might seem a tad harsh, yet we know from excavations that hives used in this period were the horizontal Egyptian type. And by the way, they were about 40 to 60 centimetres long, so perhaps it referred to a stack of them rather than a solitary one. Hive fragments around this period also reveal a further detail, a sort of scratched inner surface of the hive, and we think that was deliberate, and these grooves which gave the bees an easier way to attach and build their honeycomb. This law also implies there were a lot of hives, and this suggests an industry of sorts. Perhaps not simply limited to Athens, though. Linear bee tablets from several Aegean islands dated to 500 BC commented on legislation which sought to stop the over-exporting of both honey and beeswax to Egypt. Back in Athens, this industry seems to have grown substantially, and it wasn't just in terms of quantity. Attic honey was held in very high regard. A character in Aristophanes' The Peace, performed in 422 BC, complains about using Attic honey in a dish, as it costs too much. Four obols, apparently. Even the famous Plato has his same on the subject. In Critias, he moans about how the hills around Athens used to be wonderful, but now are stripped and merely support bees. This might sound like a bit of nimbyism on his part, but there is truth to Plato's concern. Mount Hymettus is located in Attica, and according to myth, where Zeus gave the bee its sting, honey from this location was considered a real delicacy. A number of boundary markers dating to the 1st century BC so a bit later on, were found there, and it's argued that these sectioned off areas for high. If we now add Solon's much earlier law into the equation, it's entirely plausible to picture how this industry would have existed, much like that of the olives, outside Athens and in the hills of Attica, obviously including Mount Hymettus. Greek literature found the bee and the hive equally tempting. 
Herodotus, he warns of monster bees on the other side of the Danube, or Danube and applauds the honey-making prowess of the Gyzantes in Libya. Xenophon's Oikonomica gave the queen bee as the ideal role model for any new wife, yet the bee wasn't always treated in such glowing terms. Take Aeschylus, his play The Persians, performed in 472 BC, deals with the Persian invasion some eight years previous. In it, the Persian army is likened to a swarm of bees, which itself isn't unusual. This happened elsewhere, except when they reference the swarm of bees, it's about following their leader, a king. Now, Athens was a small democracy, and the idea of kings didn't shine well with it one bit. And yet, the crucial feature of the hive was just that, an ordered structure, but with one bee in charge. The name Xenophon crops up again here. His Cyropedia includes a comment from a courtier flattering Cyrus by asserting that Cyrus had been born to rule, as is the king bee. The idea of the hive as a political construct is taken up by Cato the Elder in his work on agriculture, which dates to about 160 BC. This work fleshes out a few points from earlier, but it's worth noting that Cato really admired the bee. It was the bee which taught man to build and store food, according to him, and that's without even mentioning the highly organised society that he likes. Cato also, refer also refers to brothers who made a small fortune exporting honey after being left some land. So again, we've got some apiculture being a very, very viable industry to go into. But Cato is nowhere near as much in love with the bee as Pliny the Elder. In natural history, the hive is compared to a military camp with scouts, guards, and builders in residence. Their love of hard work and examples to us all, and they even keep their slaves properly disciplined. Pliny does attempt to handle the bigger issue, namely how the hive was ruled. The idea of kingship was abhorrent to both the Athenians and Romans, and this presented a real problem. How do you get around that? How do you like something so much but ultimately hate the main aspect of it? I'm no expert of bee politics, but I think Pliny was more metaphorical in dealing with the queen, which may have represented the senate or even perhaps the consuls. He wasn't really advocating the idea of rule by an individual, and if he was comparing it to a military camp, then there would have been one person in charge. Rome, with its trade networks, obviously integrated apiculture from across all of its lands. Sicily came to rival Attica as the place for quality honey, particularly a place called Hibla. It's in Sicily as well that we find a different type of hive referred to. Varro, right in the first century BC, mentions a box design made from dried fennel stalks. This may have predated the Roman use, or it may not have been a Roman invention, but it certainly worked, apparently. And writing a century later, Columella gives an example of different types of building materials for hives, earth, wood, more or less everything that would never survive. Ironically, he says that pottery or earthware, which was the mainstay of the hives that we know of, was the worst option. And the reason for this was simple. It, it cracks too easily, it gets too cold too easily, and it gets too hot too easily. So it wasn't very good at keeping the bees in a, in a I suppose what you call, homeostasis. It didn't keep them in a, a nice climate or environment. You may have noticed we've danced around a number of topics involving bees and beekeeping. And I want to finish up with something the Romans did. And I think it's a beautiful way to end it all. We've had some interesting poetic thoughts on bee women from Seminides, so let's balance this out with something from the Roman poet Virgil, more specifically in his fourth poem in the Georgics. Virgil writes largely uh, on the way of attracting bees back to your farm through a ritual known as the Bugonia. This involved killing a bull and leaving it for several days, after which the bees would emerge from the animal and voila, your hive would be replenished. As you might expect though, there's more going on here. To start with, the poem states Aristeus as a beekeeping deity from Greece, and 
puts him in the apicultural pantheon. Aristeus lost his bees as a result of chasing Eurydice, who had her foot bitten by a snake whilst, whilst escaping. Her vengeance from the behind the grave is the problem, as Aristeus finds out, and Begonia was the solution. And there's an interesting perspective here, because beekeeping and bees and virginity and chastity was something we can see at Ephesus. And here, you can see that Aristeus, he loses his hive, or he loses his bees, because of his lustful actions. But there's also, bearing in mind this is Virgil, there's also a political message here. And it's been argued that the Begonia itself represents the birth of the new Roman state under Augustus. The new hive isn't created from thin air. It's a result of sacrifice and death of the bull. Perhaps the bloodshed suffered by the bull is akin to that spilled during the civil wars. Augustus rise to power, which wasn't exactly clean-up point. The strife itself is a requirement creating the new generation. And I think that's quite, I'd say, beautiful. I'm not sure if it's beautiful to kill a bull, but it's, it is poetic. It's got the idea of bees symbolising rebirth, and the hive itself symbolising the birth of the Augustan Empire and the new type of Rome that was developing at that time. So there we have it. I suppose in one sense we've come full circle. I started out with a story of soldiers, Roman soldiers dying, and I finish up with the birth of the Roman Empire, which involved lots of Roman soldiers dying as well as other people dying too. And there we are. I really hope you've enjoyed this. I will do more. I'm not sure how long or short that will be. Um, thanks for listening. If you've got any comments, please leave them be. If you've got any suggestions for podcasts or anything else, again, I'm all ears. Until next time, thank you and keep safe.